sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about political uh, suppression inside Ukraine. Also going to be talking about the conflict in the eastern Congo and between the Congo and Rwanda. Also going to be talking about why Joe Biden's approval ratings are particularly slipping with young people and other elements of his base. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. So hot off the presses, the UK's relationship with its comically unkempt and feckless conservative leader Boris Johnson is finally over. Yes, Johnson's scandal-plagued tenure as prime minister of the United Kingdom brought both embarrassment to the conservative Tory party and insecurity to British citizens. And in his resignation, they don't have to worry about him and his foolishness anymore. But he sure left a lot of carnage in his wake. From his decision to ask the Queen to prorogue or shut down Parliament for five weeks at the height of a political crisis over Brexit, which members of Parliament decried as a violation of protocol and the British Supreme Court ultimately ruled to be illegal, to him backing Home Secretary Priti Patel after an investigation into allegations that she bullied staff and found that she breached the ministerial code of conduct and did not treat her employees with consideration and respect and had also committed behavior that can be described as bullying. Yes, this is the same Priti Patel who just signed an order to extradite Julian Assange to the U.S. Then there was the $280,000 or about 200,000 British pounds that he requested of Conservative Party donors to renovate his Downing Street residence, violating the regulation on political contributions and loans that are allowable in the UK, allowable uh, up to $10,000 or 7,000 British pounds, which must be reported. Well, Johnson didn't report anything, shouldn't have asked for the money in the first place. And as a result, the Conservative Party was fined 17,800 pounds by the Electoral Commission. Oh, then he tried to bully his fellow Conservative Party members to vote to overturn the suspension of Owen Patterson, who was suspended for 30 days for violating lobbying rules. They're serious about these political rules in the UK. Rather than just shut up and let the man serve his measly 30-day suspension, when his fellow MPs would not vote Johnson's way to overturn the suspension, Johnson then turned on Patterson who then quit rather than just serve the 30 days. And as a result, the Liberal Democrats won Patterson's seat, a seat that the conservatives had held for almost 200 years at the next election in December. Then there was Partygate, where Johnson threw fantastic soirees at number 10 Downing Street during the mandatory COVID lockdowns that everyone else in the UK had to endure. Everyone but him and his party friends. One of those parties particularly rankled Britons who loved themselves some Queen Elizabeth and was held on the eve of Prince 
Phillips' funeral when strict limits on socializing forced even their beloved queen to sit alone to say goodbye to her husband of nearly 74 years. But Boris and his pals were boozing up their goodbyes all together at number 10 Downing Street. And it wasn't just the parties that were bad. It was Johnson at first saying that there were no parties, then saying that, well, maybe there were parties, but he didn't know about them. Then finally admitting that, okay, yes, there were parties, but he was only there because he thought there were work events. The final straw seemed to have been his appointment of Chris Pincher to a position in government. Pincher apparently has a long history of sexual misconduct allegations that Johnson again claimed he knew nothing about until it was revealed that Pincher admitted directly to Johnson in text messages that maybe he did grope two women at a party because he did drink a lot that night and that Johnson was actually briefed about a previous allegation of misconduct involving Pincher. All of those are just the scandals that embarrassed the conservative party that caused over 30 of them to resign. There's also, though, the introduction of the Human Rights Act, which actually reduces human rights. He supported the removal of protest and voting rights, supported the British version of stop and frisk and broken windows policing that led to, you know, the same kind of injustices in the UK that they do here. And let's face it, Brexit is a disaster. Johnson even rewrote rules to the ministerial code to keep corrupt politicians who were found to violate parliamentary and legal codes of conduct in office rather than requiring them to resign. Of course, that was just an extra layer of protection that he threw in there for himself, but it didn't work out like he'd planned. It's an ignominious end to the spectacularly disheveled Boris Johnson, who was only made prime minister in 2019 because the conservatives feared the threat of a Labor Party government led by Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn became later leader in 2015 on a campaign of for the many, not the few, promising to reverse years of austerity under the conservative party through nationalizing public services and taxing the rich. His 2017 election campaign mobilized a large grassroots, and it was Corbyn's popularity in that campaign that ultimately led to then Prime Minister Theresa May losing her parliamentary majority and resigning in 2019. So Johnson was chosen as the best possible candidate to stop Corbyn and his wild socialist plot. And for only that reason, Corbyn himself was sadly the target of a diabolical smear campaign from within the Labor Party, accusing him of anti-Semitism ostensibly for his support of the BDS movement. But really, it was political retaliation by the right-leaning Labor Party members who supported Brexit being implemented by Parliament. That's what I think anyway. Corbyn, you see, opposed any Brexit deal that was not put to the people by referendum. Looks like the Tories would have been better off going with crazy old socialist Jeremy Corbyn. The people of the UK sure would have been. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Luke Mon, And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political 
social and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Don DeBar, host of the Weekday World Show on Radio Justice LA. Don, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And Don, the uh, 8th Administrative Court of Appeal in Lviv, Ukraine, recently ruled to uphold the ban on the Communist Party of Ukraine and also ordered the state to seize the party's uh, uh, properties. And this is actually something that's been uh, going on, um, at least since uh, the the U.S.-backed Maidan coup in Ukraine in 2014. And but seeing this happen also made me think about how, you know, uh, recently uh, Volodymyr Zelensky actually uh, uh, basically outlawed, I believe it was 11 opposition parties within uh, Ukraine as well. And, uh, you know, this is not something that we really hear about in the U.S. in terms of the issue of political repression inside uh, of Ukraine, I think because that would problematize the the image of Ukraine as a whole and Zelensky in particular. Um, Of course, within the context of uh, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing war. And so uh, I'm just sort of curious your your thoughts on sort of, uh, you know, really like the opportunism, I think, of uh, the, the corporate media in the U.S. and certainly the government itself of very obviously uh, showing only one side uh, of the Ukraine uh, uh, conflict and uh, not really giving this full context and nuance uh, uh, really just to serve the ends, at least in my opinion, of uh, U.S. imperialism. Yeah, I, I share your opinion on that point, by the way. Um, now, I, I on uh, Thursdays, I, I do a 4.30 a.m. segment on a radio station in New York, WBAI, um, with Lister Hewitt Lowe about international stuff. And the first thing I saw when I was doing my homework this morning to prepare for it was an article about a law that was just passed in South Africa or or the, uh, the yeah, yeah, it was a law passed in South Africa uh, saying essentially that uh, children under 10 uh, should not be allowed to, uh, I forget whether it's play video games or to, to basically to be let loose on the Internet without an adult. <clears throat> and this was termed in the report, uh, even in South African uh, media, um, as uh, being censorship. And I, I'm looking at that, thinking about what's going on in Britain right now, where they are taking it a step further, the, the, the official secrets law and all of that, to, to further restrict communications. Um, and looking at Ukraine here, where they're banning more political parties, including communist parties banned here. If you think about our own history, even Democrats, because they still use the term even as they ape the behavior, uh, referred to McCarthy era as being repressive. And the primary thing that was happening, of course, was they were sh- uh, sh- shunning and prosecuting and in some cases executing people, the Rosenbergs, for being members of the Communist Party or for being accused of it. But even here during that period, they never reached in as deeply 
as Ukraine is doing right now with the Communist Party and has done with, I have to disagree with you, about 11. is 13 parties that they've banned. Oh, okay. And then a whole other process of lustration, which parties that were allowed to exist, but you know, like they chopped their political legs off, basically. They couldn't participate in, in government functions and different other things. So the same thing is being banned in, in effect. Right now, the uh, situation in Ukraine is being portrayed as plucky little de- democracy, you know, fledgling democracy Ukraine with the plucky little uh, democratic advocate in his green T-shirt, uh, Zelensky or Elensky, if you ban the Z. Uh, you know, fighting the big, bad, evil Eastern hordes from Russia. I'm seeing that latter language, as a matter of fact, being actively pushed now by the State Department. Last week, I, I covered, I participated in a Q&A, actually, uh, a, a webinar that was conducted by the CSCE. Uh, and uh, what their line was, the purpose of this was called Decolonizing Russia, And what they were saying, in essence, was, look, Russia isn't really a country. Russia is an empire made up of a bunch of countries that were conquered 500 years ago. And our task should be to liberate those countries. In other words, to leave Russia with regime change and broken into about a dozen pieces. This is a State Department seminar conducted last week. So they're looking at this whole thing. As you know, as as a unitary operation, I mean, this comes out of you know the largest budget in the history of the world is the U.S. military budget, focused towards uh, really regime change in Russia since 1917 up until like today, and uh, all these different pieces falling into place are really U.S. policy. So you know, I don't understand when we see things like uh, just today, the Belarus uh, senior military official. I was speaking about their you know, strategic view of what's going on around their country. And they're I mean, so tightly allied to Russia that it's kind of silly to talk about it as a separate entity. Um, says the territory of Poland, as well as the Baltic states, is being turned into a staging ground from which the U.S. plans to unleash a bloody conflict in Europe targeting the Russian Federation. This is Major General Ruslan Krasigan. Now, that is the... That's the, the top military official of the guy who's got a border with these troops. This they they're seeing this here in the United States. Nobody's talking about it at all, and, and, and they're fighting. And you know, of course, a few days it was Friday or Saturday. Um, those uh, you know weapons that we gave to Ukraine with the that launch rockets. So we're going to only give them short, and medium range, so they can't reach. Russian territory, and anyone who thought about it for a minute, also they have to get in a van and pull up to the border first before they can hit Russian territory. Well, apparently they did. So these guys, Russian, uh, American weapons given to the Ukrainians, trained by Americans, who many people say are now also being, you know, command and controlled, or at least certainly advised, uh, in a, you know, on a uh, battlefield basis by Americans, bombing a Russian city and killing Russian civilians. We have reached that point already. 
Yes. You know, when we look at the the lengths that Ukraine has gone to criminalize uh, opposition, because that's what it is, and, and, and further entrench this fascist state, what, the, what also is not being reported, Don, is that um, members of uh, Communist Party organizations, uh, even youth, have been imprisoned. So, I mean, wh- what is the uh, status of some some of these uh, communist youth even who have been imprisoned uh, since this crackdown on the Communist Party and left opposition in Ukraine in particular? Yeah, absolutely right. And 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 there's some more to add to that. I mean, if you look if you look at the historical relationship of of fascism and Nazism in particular, and especially in the uh, you know former Soviet republics. Um, yeah, yeah, you have to start really with with uh, uh, Hitler's Mein Kampf. Honestly, he dissects in 1924 in his jail cell. Uh, in his opinion, his distorted, but there's some factual basis to everything he said historically. Um, he's looking at the the rise of the various empires in Europe and Germany's failure to attain the global footprint of. The, the Britain, France, um, you know, uh, even Spain, Portugal, you know, et cetera. I mean, you look around the world, Brazil, they speak Portuguese. There's no place in the Western Hemisphere on that scale where they speak German or really any place in the world outside of Europe. So he's talking about that situation from 1924 and looking to build Germany into a global empire. And so he's analyzing the paths. And essentially, Asia, uh, Latin America, uh, and Africa have been carved up already. And the only way to take those colonies to draw to build Germany, they need colonies to build Germany. That's the the, sub, the you know premise of the whole thing. And he's looking at history, and it's it's solid case as far as what he's trying to do. Um, the, the last place left really is in Europe. You just look to look to the east. Russia has all the natural resources you need. It has a somewhat educated and, and trained uh, population in terms of workers. Um, and uh, so the plan is to go there and to excite the individual nationalities, you know, the, the, the Turkmen's, the, the Belarusians, the, the Ukrainians, the, you know, et cetera. In the Soviet Union, I'm talking about, I'm sorry, I said Russia. Um, the various ethnicities in there, the Baltics, and all of that, and play with, prey upon uh, the contradictions that are historical baggage, basically, um, and break the place up. That was his strategy. And in order to do that, he was saying that, Germany's mistake has always been, A, that they didn't make peace with England so that their back was covered and then move into Russia, even if they agreed not to militarize the front uh, facing England, because after we get what we want out of Russia, we're going to be in a position to dictate to the world. And this policy, if you study uh, just what he has detailed in Mein Kampf, Look at it against what the U.S. State Department is selling right now. You'd have a really hard time fitting three hairs between them. 
Yeah, I think that's the case. And, you know, what I think Jackie was uh, referencing a little earlier were uh, these two brothers, uh, Mikhail and Alexander Kananovich, who were leaders of a group called the Leninist Communist Youth Union of uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, who were arrested back in March 6th. And these were, you know, anti-imperialist young people who, you know, held demonstrations calling for Ukraine to sever ties with NATO and to resolve uh, the issue with Russia peacefully. But, uh, you know, here again, these are not things that that we hear about here in the U.S. and the West. And on a related note, I think, Don, because, I mean, what we're seeing, the whole issue with the the proxy war in Ukraine is uh, a part of the U.S. really making a uh, campaign against the countries that it feels most threatened by in terms of U.S. world hegemony. And that, of course, is Russia and also China. And on that note, uh, the heads of the FBI and the MI5, which is the main uh, British intelligence agency, um, gave a joint warning uh, declaring uh, supposedly that China uh, is an ever-growing threat. Now, MI5 Director General Ken uh, McCollum was quoted as saying that uh, the agency has, quote, more than doubled our previously constrained effort against Chinese activities of concern. And Christopher Ray, who's the director of the FBI, says that the Chinese government, quote, poses the biggest long term threat, unquote, to the national security and economic interests of the U.S., the U.K. and the allies in Europe. Uh, Ray also said, quote, the Chinese government is trying to shape the world by interfering in our politics and those of our allies, I should add. Uh, This is what, uh, you know, uh, he said here recently. And so, you know, obviously, here, Don, we see these U.S. and Western institutions continually to, to, to double down and triple down and quadruple down on uh, this idea that China uh, poses some kind of real existential threat to the United States, to the interest of the United States and to the people of the United States. And not just with these pronouncements from the MI5 and the FBI, but also, you know, with the organization of, you know, groups like AUKUS, this Australia, UK, US, uh, basically anti-China axis that has been developed here. I mean, just in so many ways, we see this kind of new Cold War reality uh, really cross up and, and seemingly intensifying. And so, Don, I'm wondering how you see, um, you know, these pronouncements from the U.S. and the West on China sort of connected to uh, uh, what we continue to see uh, vis-a-vis the issue of Russia and Ukraine. You know, that, that, let me button up the last uh, thing first, because I didn't really answer uh, Jackie's uh, question on, on point. That was the context for, for the answer. The answer is, in essence, um, if you look at history, the, the Nazis they were created, in essence, as a uh, counter move to Bolshevism, to the Communist Party in Russia. Uh, the threat that that posed to the bourgeoisie in Germany, you had the attempted revolution a year after the Russian Revolution had almost succeeded. Um, and the antipathy towards uh, uh, Bolshevism was stoked also with anti-Semitism in Germany when they developed the philosophy. You know, Bolshevism is some distorted evil creature of the evil Jews. That was how that traveled. Well, this is exactly the philosophy that Bandera brought to Ukraine. 
while they were killing Jews and communists. And so when you're looking at what's being done to members of the Communist Party inside of Ukraine right now, while people are goose-stepping around and under their uh, modified swastika and all of the Bandera worship, etc., you have to understand that in the historical context. With respect to what's happening with England and with Britain and uh, I said England because that's how far the relationship goes back, that with Britain and China and the U.S., First of all, we see it's the same game that they played with uh, with uh, Russia over Ukraine. You've had them stoking Taiwan. Um, you have a whole bunch of other things happening, including recently, let, over the past few days, uh, the announcement that they're uh, sending stealth, uh, you know, uh, military aircraft uh, to uh, war game with uh, what they call South Korea. Um, over the next few days, and these are a definite threat to to China, as China stated. Um, you know, Britain was the colonial power uh, in uh, in China, one, the primary one. As a matter of fact, when Hitler was looking at Russia as a potential colony to step onto the world stage alongside Britain, uh, Britain was sitting on top of Hong Kong and a whole bunch of other properties in uh, in Asia around that. They seek to regain that. The current uh, geostrategic situation as a consequence of American foreign policy, which was to attack both Russia and China at the same time during the Obama administration, was to formulate what they call a strategic partnership that has been only further formulated by the war in Ukraine and the threat of war in Taiwan. And so when the U.S. marks China as an existential threat or as the main threat or whatever, what they're really talking about is the block that is developing uh, that includes Russia and China as a possible military counterweight to the United States, China as the largest economy by many measures in the world, and the configuration is building from Asia to Africa and Latin America with the Belt and Road Project. The China as a uh, key part of this uh, Eurasian alliance is definitely a threat to American hegemony by offering the rest of the world an alternative to American imperialism. Whether China ends up developing into an imperialist power or not, that's a separate discussion. The point is, whatever it is and whatever it becomes is an alternative that didn't exist before to American imperialism, and therein lies the real threat. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Don, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about turmoil in the eastern Congo. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Abayomi Azikiwe, editor of the Pan-African News Wire. Abayomi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. 
Absolutely. And, and Abayomi, the New York Times is reporting that there are more than 120 militia groups operating in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And this is happening as tensions continue to grow uh, between the Congo and uh, uh, neighboring Rwanda. And uh, reportedly, uh, the presidents of the Congo and Rwanda, uh, Felix Shikedi and Paul Kagame, respectively, uh, were supposed to have met this week uh, with Congo accusing Rwanda of supporting a rebel group known as M23 and Rwanda accusing Congo of attacking its border and both sides accusing the other of firing rockets across the border. And, you know, I was hoping you could help us understand, Abayomi, just what is the real root of uh, uh, a lot of this uh, conflict between Congo and uh, Rwanda? And and what is really, from, from your perspective, sort of the driving factor between the ongoing turmoil in the Congo? What we have is uh, the legacy of the post-colonial political and geopolitical configuration. Uh, All of these states uh, were, of course, at one time colonized uh, by Belgium and uh, other European states. In fact, uh, Rwanda at one point uh, was colonized by Germany, and then after World War I, uh, the Belgians uh, took over uh, Rwanda as well as uh, neighboring Burundi. The uh, Democratic Republic of Congo had been colonized by Belgium up until uh, 1960. Uh, what has happened uh, over the last uh, three decades uh, is, of course, uh, the collapse of this uh, post-colonial and, in fact, neo-colonial uh, construct uh, in uh, Congo, of course, and it's very interesting that um, this issue is coming to the fore uh, right at the time of uh, the 97th uh, birthday of uh, the first prime minister of the Republic of Congo, uh, Patrice Lumumba, and uh, the return of his remains uh, being a gold tooth uh, by Belgium to the Democratic Republic of Congo for burial last week. Uh, We have uh, Rwanda, of course, being accused of supporting the M23 rebels. We have at the same time uh, the Rwandan President Paul Kagame accusing uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo of allowing uh, Hutu uh, rebel militias uh, who were connected to the 1994 genocide some 28 years ago to operate uh, in the Eastern uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. There's also the factor the major factor of the mining companies and other multinational interests uh, in Congo and the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a treasure trove of natural resources. Uh, They have cobalt, uh, they have diamonds, uh, gold, and uh, coltan, among other resources. Uh, So we have the conflict, uh, lingering conflict, of the uh, immediate post-colonial crisis uh, coming up uh, to the third decade of the 21st century, where these borders are creating tensions uh, between uh, the various uh, states. But at the same time, uh, you have the United States, which has funded uh, a number of these militias, uh, which have, of course, uh, caused problems uh, both in Rwanda as well as uh, as in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So it's a complex situation. But if we start uh, from the perspective uh, that the borders were drawn uh, some 60 years ago, then we understand uh, the inherent crisis in which uh, both the Congolese and Rwandan people have faced uh, since uh, the early 1960s.
Yeah, and just this week, uh, the presidents of Congo and Rwanda uh, will meet in Angola to discuss uh, just this uh, situation that has escalated even further. And Congo has accused Rwanda of backing the rebel group M23, which has killed civilians uh, in some attacks and captured a cross-border trading town. And uh, Congo has also accused Rwanda of uh, committing offenses uh, and atrocities against it and uh, causing attacks across its border. What are, you know, the the prospects for these two leaders coming to an agreement that does not uh, continue the tensions, but that does not result in more all-out war as, you know, one of the, I believe, Rwandan leaders said, or Congolese leaders said that if, if Rwanda wants war, they will have one. Yeah, that was um, people within uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo who made that statement uh, several weeks ago. And uh, we have to remember uh, that uh, going back uh, to 1996 and 1997, uh, when uh, Mobutu Sese Seko, uh, who was a decades-long puppet leader on behalf of the United States and other imperialist countries in Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo, then known as Zaire, uh, there was an insurgency and a successful insurgency against his government by the allied uh, Democratic Forces for Liberation and was headed at the time uh, by um, Laurent Kabila. Kabila had been a Lumumba's uh, even back in the early 60s and spent many years in exile in uh, neighboring uh, Tanzania. And uh, he was able to mobilize uh, forces inside the DRC, as well as uh, gaining the support of Rwanda and Uganda uh, in uh, toppling uh, the government of Mobutu Sese Seko, which happened in May of 1997. Now, over the next year, uh, there was a parting of ways uh, between uh, the DRC government, uh, the country was renamed the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1997, and uh, Rwanda and Uganda. Uh, They wanted, in fact, to remove uh, uh, Laurent Kabila as head of state in 1998. And, of course, uh, that did not happen uh, because when they intervened uh, using a uh, Rwandan uh, Democratic Forces uh, uh, rebel group, uh, the Angolan government, uh, the Zimbabwean government uh, at that time, which was head of the Southern African Development Community Military Commission, uh, this was when Robert Mugabe was president of the Republic of Zimbabwe in uh, uh, the summer of 1998, along uh, with the Republic of Namibia, uh, sent in military forces uh, to defend uh, the Kabila government. And this resulted in a five-year uh, protracted military conflict, uh, which uh, had Angola, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Namibia on one side uh, supporting uh, the Kabila government, and on the other side, Rwanda and uh, the uh, Ugandan government on the other side. Now, that war was concluded. Uh, It was a negotiated settlement in 2003. However, uh, with the intervention of the United Nations peacekeeping forces, now, uh, since the mid-2000s, uh, uh, it uh, still has not uh, resolved 
the critical issues of militia groups, which you had mentioned, and also rebel groups, uh, which are continuing to struggle uh, around numerous issues uh, involving the border between the DRC and Rwanda. And uh, the imperialists um, uh, control mining firms uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo have even hired uh, some of the militia groups and rebel groups uh, to guard uh, their extractive uh, operations uh, in the DRC. Uh, so uh, you ha- cannot exclude uh, the uh, multinational corporations uh, from this whole uh, uh, political conflict. I think that uh, neither country, neither government at this time, uh, being uh, Felix Chesakete in uh, the DRC and Paul Kagame in Rwanda, want a full-blown uh, military conflict. Uh, this is not the time uh, for this to happen, considering the monumental food deficits that are taking place, uh, the inflation uh, that is going on that's impacting the entire uh, international community, and uh, the overall insecurity uh, that is being felt by people throughout the world. So hopefully, through their talks uh, over uh, the, the period of earlier this week, uh, they can avoid a military conflict and try to de-escalate uh, the situation uh, on the border between the DRC and uh, the Rwandan government. Yeah, and when it comes to issues like these at Wyoming, I'm also, I'm always curious about what ripple effects, if any, uh, there could be in the region, in that Africa uh, Great Lakes region. I mean, do you foresee these issues not only within the Congo, but uh, uh, between the Congo and Rwanda sort of emanating throughout uh, other countries in the surrounding area, or how do you see that? Yes, it definitely has uh, that potential, uh, because uh, if there is a, a escalation of tensions, uh, that means that you'll have uh, people fleeing uh, the various towns around Goma uh, and uh, other areas uh, in the eastern DRC. Uh, They could flee into Rwanda. Uh, They could flee to other parts of the DRC and uh, even into Angola and other countries uh, in the region. Uh, That is, in and of itself is a destabilizing factor considering the fact that even the United Nations affiliated uh, humanitarian organizations are having a very difficult time right now raising funds uh, due to the central focus uh, being on Ukraine and Eastern Europe. Uh, if you watch uh, the mainstream media in the United States, uh, you would never know that there are monumental food deficits, uh, there's threats of famine uh, in East Africa, and that these crises are taking place in other geopolitical regions of the world outside of uh, what is taking place in Ukraine. Uh, so this is, in part, you know, is, is a result of the U.S., Pentagon's and State Department's efforts uh, to re-exert itself militarily uh, in, in opposition to the Russian Federation. But many people throughout the world are suffering as a result of this war in Ukraine, the sanctions that have been leveled against the Russian Federation, and it has caused uh, food deficits and other uh, trading issues, uh, particularly impacting Africa, uh, because um, they've made it more difficult uh, for African governments and institutions to purchase uh, agricultural products, agricultural inputs uh, from Russia and from Ukraine. Uh, so this war in Ukraine is having international 
uh, implications. So I think uh, the African continent, the African Union, despite all of its problems and its contradictions, has taken the correct position of uh, demanding that there be a negotiated uh, diplomatic settlement to the war in Ukraine, and that Africa should not be drawn into uh, this conflict, even on a political level, uh, because uh, it is not; it won't be advantageous uh, to the African Union and, and its people. Yeah, and of course, uh, if there were to be uh, an escalation to the conflict, if peace is not reached, we always have to ask, who would benefit? Certainly not the Congolese, certainly not the Rwandans. So who would benefit from these continued uh, tensions? Well, only uh, the imperialist countries, uh, which would supply arms, uh, which would uh, take sides uh, with either Rwanda or the DRC, or in an attempt to position themselves as uh, uh, diplomats who could resolve uh, the conflict. But clearly it would not uh, help the people of uh, Eastern DRC, the DRC as a whole, Rwanda, and the other uh, neighboring countries, be it Tanzania, uh, Uganda, and Burundi. Uh, So it's a very, very uh, delicate situation uh, that is taking place right now. Uh, but it has to be resolved uh, diplomatically. I think the African Union in their statement several days ago uh, saying that uh, the tensions should be should be reduced, uh, that the uh, various positions uh, should be moderated, and uh, a peace settlement uh, should be worked on. At the same time, in Kenya, uh, President uh, Uhuru Kenyatta has uh, called for the uh, deployment of a regional peacekeeping force on the border between the DRC and uh, Rwanda. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if that's in place yet, uh, but that is the aim of uh, Kenya, which is the largest economy uh, in East Africa. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Abayomi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the fate of the Joe Biden administration as approval ratings continue to dwindle. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ryan Cooper, managing editor of The American Prospect. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And Ryan, here on the show, we've been marking the uh, uh, dwindling approval rating numbers for uh, U.S. President Joe Biden, uh, of course, uh, a Democrat. And it seems that uh, really a lot of his support seems to be uh, uh, deteriorating, particularly amongst the core aspects of his base, like uh, young people, for instance. And you uh, recently published a piece about just this issue in the American Prospect entitled President Biden is not cutting the mustard 
Washington. And, uh, you know, if we take a step back and sort of look at how I think Biden and the Democrats as a whole are sort of faring in this moment, how they're being perceived by the public and by their base, it doesn't look good for some of the uh, forthcoming uh, electoral contests, I think particularly in the midterms and in a couple of years in the next presidential election. But from your perspective, Ryan, I mean, uh, what do you think is really to blame for this uh, uh, for this drop in approval in Joe Biden? And I mean, what, if anything, do you think they can do to turn things around? Well, I think first you should admit that a lot of it um, is not his fault. You know, you have the, the way the constitutional system, you know, makes it so difficult to pass anything. And the way that the swing votes in his own caucus are so dedicated to the filibuster that, you you know, you only have the chance of doing these like reconciliation bills. And so the entire party has to agree on everything and it, everything just gets bogged down. And Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema don't really seem to care whether or not Biden is perceived as a total loser. And so that's just tough. But I think there's also, you know, there, there's uh, a, a big aspect of this that is you know, Biden's fault. Uh, you know, people mock the power of the, the president to, like, change public opinion or force things through Congress. But, you know, there's such a thing as leadership and there's such a thing as, like, being, uh, appearing to, you know, care about and, and work towards achieving the, the goals of the your own constituents. And I think in the case of abortion, you know, the, they were uh, totally flat-footed, uh, flat-footed when uh, Roe versus Wade was overturned. They didn't have a plan to deal with the myriad complexities that are all now arising because of uh, what happened with regards to, like, state law and how this interact with, like, the regulation of drugs and stuff like that. Uh, no plan whatsoever. And, you know, this is, like, a core part of the, of the Democratic base. And... Um, you know, they just don't seem to have any sort of plan, not only to, like, deal with, um, you know, abortion rights in the short term, passing some sort of law, you know, a, a clear explanation of what they could do if they're if they, you know, retain control of Congress, but also what they're going to do about the Supreme Court and the fact that there are six people on there who are totally out of their minds more, to varying degrees. But, you know, they are clearly... Uh, feeling their oats on the court and willing to strike down just about anything. So what if you pass something and the Supreme Court uh, strikes down a codification of, of Roe? What is what are you going to do then? What if they say, oh, there, there's a constitution, the Constitution bans all abortion? You know, that's not out of the question either. And they're just hapless. Indeed, Biden was was ruling out more aggressive actions, more possibilities because uh, he was worried about the legitimacy of the court. It's like he's helping them, you know, undermine his own agenda and his own presidency. And that, you know, I think it j just makes him appear and and uh, actually be just totally feckless. And Democrats are like, well, what is the point of voting if you're not going to do anything while the, the right wing court just runs over you?
and this is the thing, Ryan, this was not the overturning of Roe versus Wade in particular. This was not something that was unforeseen. This wasn't something that, you know, your average person who is even marginally politically aware and pays a little bit of, it, of attention to uh, the Supreme Court and, uh, you know, conservative maneuvering over the years couldn't have predicted because I think we all did. So it's weird that the president now, President Joe Biden, who uh, was vice president when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, couldn't think of, you know, maybe there is something that we should be doing as a Democratic Party to prepare for when the Republicans replace a bunch of justices on the Supreme Court and overturn the Supreme Court, just and overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. Just the fact that he was present when this crisis was I guess, materialized with Ginsburg's death in 2020 didn't result in any kind of different course of action that has materialized, as as you point out, a plan today. And I, I think that just speaks to maybe not only his fecklessness, but I really do think it's it's an indication of how much The Democrats really don't care about the people that they claim they are there to fight for uh, in opposition to the Republicans. Yeah, I mean, everyone knew when Ginsburg died after foolishly not retiring in 2013, after she'd already had cancer twice, I should note, that Roe was toast. Sooner or later, it was going down. You know, the conservatives have been gunning for it for, you know, for 40 years. And they uh, they that was their opportunity. They were going to seize it. Not only that, we had a leaked draft of the opinion a couple of months ago that, you know, that's something that never, almost never happens. So it gives you a direct you know indication that this is going to happen. But, you know, with 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 Biden specifically, I was reading a book by a former staffer of his for, for many years, a guy named Jeff. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how he pronounced his last name, but he talked about working for Biden for a long time as an aide and that his his top top aides, when he first started, said, quote, they knew Biden would ignore every task he didn't want to do and every person he didn't want to deal with. And that I think, you know, it's a, it's a he's a, he's a little bit of a lazy procrastinator. And when he's kind of conflicted on something, he just doesn't want to deal with it. He's He's not going to do anything. And then so it just completely blindsided his entire administration because, you know, the president has to decide what's going to happen. And, yeah, I think it, you know, it it shows you how at a minimum how, um, you know, at the national level, Democrats have been pretty happy to triangulate on abortion while Roe was still there to protect them so they could theoretically indulge, you know, sort of like wishy-washy positions on it. But now, you know, they're looking down the barrel of these state-level bans that have, like, no exceptions at all. Um, sometimes even, you know, they've seen there was a briefly a law in Louisiana that didn't even have an exception for, like, the life of the mother. You know, like, like this is going to be probably a lot worse than the pre-Roe uh, uh, system. And so, you know, that to... to be hem and haw over this stuff rather than attack the Republicans on their incredibly unpopular position that, that 
you know, uh, we should force rape victims or incest victims to bear their assailants' children. But that position pulls at like 10, 20 percent, something like that. And yet Democrats are they they lack initiative so much, you know, especially in the leadership that they can't, you know, press the advantage. You know, it should be a layup and, and maybe it will be for a lot of folks at the state level, but, but Biden just seems completely just paralyzed with indecision. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to touch on within this same uh, uh, realm, if you will, Ryan, is, I mean, the right wing of the Democrats, the people that are called uh, uh, moderates. But I, you know, I I think that that's actually a misnomer. And I feel like here lately we've seen, you know, a lot of attention and and understandably so on, you know, the Joe Manchins and the Kirsten Cinema. But uh, they're just two, I think, of really an entire element and a considerable one uh, within the the, the Democratic Party. And this is a wing of the Democrats that, you know, the leadership seems, uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, pretty, I mean, sympathetic to uh, and things like this, I think, to their own detriment as this element engages to block a lot of really popular policies, things that would actually help the Democrats out of this kind of political rut that they're in. And you recently published a piece about this as well on the American Prospect entitled, uh, quote, moderate Democrats are anything but. And so how do you see this element sort of uh, uh, playing a role in uh, uh, how the Democrats are operating at this point? Yeah, there's a very strange sort of uh, self-definition of these moderate folks that doesn't bear any relationship to the polls. You know, if you're if you're sort of moderate, you know, if you're looking down like the, the list of issue polls and stuff, you would have something like uh, John Fetterman, who's not a socialist by any stretch of the imagination, but he's all about gay marriage, legal pot, you know, higher taxes on the rich, these, these sort of like bread and butter populist issues. And people like Stephanie Murphy, you know, who's constantly complaining to Beltway reporters about how the Biden administration is trying to push them, you know, to vote for the Build Back Better. She is just completely in the pocket of the pharmaceutical industry. And she has uh, she was fervently opposed to this uh, part of the Build Back Better bill that was about letting Medicare negotiate drug prices with the pharma companies, basically stop ripping the government off on, on all these drugs. And that polls at about 80 to n- over 90 percent approval, depending on how you phrase the question. It's like super majorities of Republicans. You know, this is like... V- is apple pie good? You know, like, like is America a land of like baseball? I mean, you couldn't ask for an easier issue. And yet she's just squalling over this, you know, pressure. It's like, this is not moderation. You know, you're, you're, you're corrupt. You're, you're, you're taking money from these interest groups to, to, to screw over your constituents and then blaming it on, you know, the, the party that wants the, the left of the party that is, already accepted a massive compromise in the form of, you know, Biden's bill, which is nothing at all like what Bernie Sanders would do if he had the power. And then, you know, they block even that from happening. No, no, not even Biden's, you know, sort of timid half measures in the form of build back better. We don't even get that. So it's like, what you know, what, <laughs> what are we even doing here as a party, aside from just like laying the groundwork for the, you know, next Republican regime? 
Yeah. And, you know, speaking of compromise and uh, regarding Biden, the compromise that he seems to have made with Mitch McConnell, I think, speaks to what you just said, laying the groundwork for the next, you know, conservative regime. How, how does that play out and how how do you situate it in the political prospects of the Democratic Party in the midterms and the upcoming presidential elections? Yeah, this one is really just something else. So he was going to trade an appointment of a nomination of like a fervently Republican, uh, conservative, anti-abortion guy who's close to Kentucky Republicans to a seat on the federal bench. And in return, Mitch McConnell was going to stop blocking the uh, appointment of two uh, U.S. attorneys. in, in Kentucky. And so right away, that's a terrible trade. You know, lifetime appointment on the federal bench, a very powerful position in return for two U.S. attorneys that will be there for the next, you know, two and a half years uh, at most, probably. And uh, second, the only reason that McConnell is allowed to block this thing on the, these attorneys under the uh you know, democratically controlled Senate is so because the Democrats have been respecting these stupid tradition of allowing, you know, uh, senators to, you know, have some say over the nominations in their particular region. It's like they could just change that rule. Then McConnell wouldn't have any leverage at all. But so you're seeing on the one hand, the Democratic Senate uh, is so just, you know, wrapped up in these fake traditions that make no sense and are completely stupid. Um, and are ditched by Republicans the moment they get in the way of anything they want. And then the president, uh, who thinks that they're probably going to lose the Senate, and so he's preemptively trying to build some goodwill with Mitch McConnell because once Republicans control the Senate, they're not going to be able to do anything without Mitch McConnell's, you know, anything that requires Senate approval, rather, without McConnell's say, say so. So they're setting up a bargain there. And it's just the most loser mindset you could possibly imagine on both sides, you know, that you wouldn't change the rules to get the thing that you want done. And then don't just assume you're going to die, like fight, fight hard. You know, the, the Senate is not completely toast. The Republicans have nominated lunatics in, in a lot of uh, areas. Like it, it's not a, a, a lost cause. And yet, you know, it, it's like uh, despairing. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, July 7th, 2022. 
And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Libra, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 13 90 a.m. in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it. We want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Margaret Kimberly, editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of the book Presidential: Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's good to be back. And it's good to have you back, Margaret, uh, uh, particularly now as we continue to see uh, protest in Akron, Ohio, following the racist police killing of uh, 25-year-old Jalen Walker, reportedly 90 shots fired at uh, Walker, 60 of them actually striking him. And according to autopsy reports, his body, uh, police actually handcuffed his body after shooting him. And so, I mean, the inhumanity here is pretty wild, not to mention still some very serious and persistent questions around the, the narrative being put out by the police, which is basically par for the course at this point when you talk about uh, a racist police killing. And uh, interestingly, I mean, uh, when we, uh, you know, we've seen, you know, curfews implemented and then lifted as protests continue despite that. And even if we look at the arrest that happened at some of these protests, I mean, reportedly, uh, the father of Jacob Blake and the aunt of Breonna Taylor um, have been uh, arrested uh, during these protests as well. So we see the relatives of other uh, of victims of uh, police terror in different ways be a part of this also. Now, you recently published a piece about this uh, for Black Agenda Report entitled Protesting for Jalen Walker, where you made, uh, I think, some of critical connections between uh, the issue of racist police terror as a whole, uh, not not just those that uh, are sort of the, the most uh, prominent cases, but sort of the, 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 the sort of overarching issue of racist police terror and how that connects to um, sort of the, the systemic issues of white supremacy and capitalism out of which this uh, uh, policing institution uh, emerges itself and, you know, connecting it with the George Floyd protest and things like that. And so I'm wondering sort of your uh, analysis, uh, not only over uh, uh, sort of the movement against racist police terror at this point, Margaret, but where you think this movement should be headed, you know, ideologically and strategically as things continue to unfold. Well, um, you know, I, I wanted to, I was trying to convey 
Uh, first of all, I just want to be clear. Of course, people are outraged about this young man's death and about the the terrible brutality uh, in shooting him 60 times. There was no reason, even if there was a reason for him to be stopped, this is the sort of thing that only happens to black people, where something simple, a traffic stop escalates into someone uh, being killed because that person is black. Let's just cut to that chase. And so when we see a case, uh, George Floyd begging for his life, or this young man shot 60 times. When we see uh, uh, cases like this, it, of course, it arouses our interest and arouses our outrage. But I think it's important to remember that police in this country kill a thousand people every year. Three people, on, on average, three people every day. One of those persons will be black. So uh, whatever date it was that um, uh, uh, Jalen Walker was killed, however many days ago that was, there are that many number of black people who were killed by the police somewhere in this country. And I think it's important to say, you know, if you're shot by one bullet and you're dead, you're just as dead. So uh, we should not reserve our outrage for cases such as uh, as this one. But it, it there's this. Um, uh, it just for every time uh, a case does come into uh, uh, the public sphere that gets a lot of attention, that gets a lot of media. Uh, the media they go through cycles where they don't pay attention at all, and then all of a sudden they're paying attention again, and we react and. Um, uh, in the usual predictable ways, but I, I think there, there's something, there's a lot missing. And uh, I think that um, we have to acknowledge our position in this country as colonized people. Uh, that's, that's one term we can use instead of treating every killing as though it's some sort of aberration, acknowledge how common this is, acknowledge the links between policing and the mass incarceration state, uh, acknowledging that no one uh, in the uh, our political sphere who are, have the power to do something about this don't do anything. Is there a difference when there's a Democrat in office or a Republican in office? No, there isn't. So I think we have to face these hard and very painful truths uh, if we are um, if we're going to be able to move forward, and we have to be honest about what does and does not work. And Margaret, how do you situate what we are not doing and what needs to be done in? Uh, relation to, you know, the black liberation movement and other liberation movements in this country from the not so distant past. People think that that era of struggle was like decades and decades and decades ago. And it really was much more recently than uh, than we than any of us uh, should be comfortable with because of where we continue to be. But but I, I, I can't help but look at what you pointed to in the examples in Ecuador and in Colombia, where people who recognize that their governments, the governments in their countries, did not represent them. And that is what they based their movements, their their actions, their organization on. How are we doing that differently here? Well, we have one, there are a couple of things we need to do differently. Um, one is we have to we have to go we have to go back to the past and see what worked. 
you know, people talk about this, the liberation movement, generally called the civil rights movement, and it's fetishized and talked about constantly, but nobody talks about what actually happened, what people did. People acted in concert. They had very clear demands. They did not have, and I think it may have been a good thing, did not have friends in politics uh, in either party. They acted on their own. They acted and made demands knowing that nobody wanted to hear their demands and made them anyway. Uh, so I think that that's something important for people to uh, remember. And I brought up the issue of what's happening around the world because that's something that we can learn. You know, people in, uh, in the examples I, I gave, such as in Ecuador, where there was a general strike, which uh, uh, people won some of their uh, uh, demands against neoliberal policy and destruction of their environment, uh, many indigenous groups in that country. Um, they knew that if they didn't act, nothing was going to happen that would benefit them. They didn't say, well, this politician said, or our Constitution says, or, well, this law over here says, or the Supreme Court says this or said that. They knew that the system was not working for them, and so they acted together to demand change, and they got it. And this is something that Americans can learn from. Um, and, and, there, and I think we have to acknowledge that we should look to the rest of the world where people uh, of various races, we have um, uh, indigenous, a mostly indigenous movement in Ecuador, a neighboring country of Colombia, a black woman was elected vice president, uh, a woman who uh, worked with the movement there for many uh, years where there was also a, a general strike in the Afro-descended uh, community there. And we see uh, around the world that it's uh, the people acting, the people being in movement, people acknowledging if they don't do it, nothing that they want is going to occur. And uh, I think, uh, you know, rather than thinking of ourselves as the superior one and, and living on the um, a past reputation, which uh, frankly isn't deserved anymore. We need to talk about how we can act in a similar way, which is a heavy lift because it's been several decades now, well, more than several decades, right, since um, any of those mass movements which changed the country for the better uh, and, and changed it so much have taken place. So it's a couple generations without uh, the kind of action that we need, popular action uh, that we need. But uh, I'm optimistic. We saw some of it two years ago in the protests after George Floyd was killed. Um, and that movement evaporated for a couple of reasons. I think the it was problematic that it was a presidential election year and uh, Americans are are pushed to to vote and not do anything else and I I think the desire to get rid of Trump and all of these things took all the air out of the room and so that kind of fizzled out but uh, those are some of the examples that I was looking to that can be guides for us now yeah definitely and you know I I tend to feel like whether we're talking about the struggle in Ecuador or in Colombia, 
uh, and, you know, these other struggles that we can point to similarly. And I think this is connected. Like when we talk about the uh, abortion rights issue here in the United States and people say, oh, well, look at how, you know, uh, the same struggle was uh, organized around in, you know, Latin America, whether it's Mexico or Argentina or what have you. And see, the thing about social movements is that, you know, they they evolve in uh in their own time and under particular kinds of circumstances and sometimes i fear that people in the us because i think just because of the 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 character of this culture i should say the class character of american capitalist culture um it's like an instant gratification kind of attitude that that a lot of people uh tend to take and i think some of us Lack in appreciation for the the kind of uh, a long, hard, unglamorous work of really building the kind of movement that can carry through this change. And I think that is also a characteristic of uh, the black liberation struggle that you're detailing here, uh, uh, Margaret. And so I, I just feel like it's it's important then to really, you know, not shy away, you know, from that kind of organizing 101 uh, uh, kind of work. I mean, I know. I'm Black Agenda Report in uh, years past, you all have published things like Organizing 101, like the basic things that you should do, these kind of basic stepping stones, how you go, you meet people, you get their contact information, you follow up, you develop things to bring more and more people in. Because when we talk about organizing, I mean, at base, what we're really talking about is building these relationships both in communities and uh, uh, across movements that are going to really grow the base that we're going to need to really have that kind of critical mass that's going to be necessary to really carry these things through. Because that is, at least in my opinion, um, one of the things that the uh, sort of rank and file person has, the the, the poor working and oppressed people. This is, this is what they have over uh, the ruling classes or the numbers and the sheer tenacity to really want to uh, uh, change this society. And so when we talk about developing the kind of movement that can really bring uh, uh, about that kind of change, then it seems like those uh, kind of fundamental rudimentary uh, things that have stood the test of time that are really important to uh, highlight, Margaret. Yeah, I think so. And we, we uh, I, I think even when we talk about that past era, we gloss over the basic organizing that went on. And we elevate certain people as if they didn't spring from a movement like Martin mm-hmm. Luther King. Well, he didn't spring from, from nowhere. Um, or Rosa Parks sprang from the movement. So all of these people um, uh, were involved in organizing in various degrees. They joined with other people. And um, and that is how they changed the country. So there are some very basic things, less glamorous things, but um, that's what people did when they. It, it could be for voting rights. It could be a rent strike. It could be any number of things uh, that people did in uh, you know now seemingly ancient times. We had rotary phones and mimeograph machines, and they could still get thousands of people to turn out, which means it can happen again. And um, uh, so I, I want us to remember, but learn the right lessons from uh, those days. But there's a lot of education that has to be done. I uh, myself acknowledge I have, you know, now hear of people who I'd never heard of before who played a seminal role in events of that time. Uh, but, uh, but that is what is needed. 
And, uh, you know, it has to be honest discussion about things that went right, things that didn't go right, how the movement was crushed. We can't uh, ignore that fact, how we would prevent that from from happening uh, again. A lot of confusion, people who are well-meaning but uh, confused about how to make things um, uh, happen. For example, I remember uh, when the protests after George Floyd was murdered uh, sprang up in Minnesota, and people were at pains to say, well, you know, we're not the ones who— did, you know, through a rock through a window. That was somebody from somewhere else. We would never do that. Well, it's the person who throws the rock through the window who makes something happen. And uh, you have to be, it's a, it's a fine line to navigate. But um, uh, this uh, 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 desire to change things and then to, uh, to deny those things which actually happen that make things happen, I think is it's an example to me that I, I remember that. Uh, or people would say, well, it was outsiders who did that. It wasn't people who lived here in Minneapolis. Um, these are things that we have to be careful of. And I think that that comes from the lack of political education, not knowing the history, um, uh, talking about rebellions as rebellions and not dismissing them as riots. Uh, all of those things have to come into play if the conversation is going to get us anywhere. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, you know, I always encourage people to to, to be wise and, and, and disciplined when we uh, in, in engage in demonstrations and actions and things such as this. And the funny thing about it, and I think we were talking about this on the show the other day, <clears throat> is about how, you know, the state is very opportunistic uh, when it comes to, you know, being, um, you know, quote unquote, peaceful, you know, on the one hand, that's why I always say, you know, honestly, people are always asking um, organizers and protesters if something's going to be quote unquote peaceful. I mean, I think you should ask the police, you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, and the whole issue around uh, property damage, I mean, my my thing around that has always been is that, you know, uh, certainly, you know, I don't encourage people to do that, but also saying it, it, the, the response from the capitalist class is that, you know, they, they they see that as violence on par with the taking of a human life, whether it's George Floyd or whoever, you know what I mean? And so I think also understanding sort of the class character of policing and the way that it plays out both historically and contemporarily goes a long way for that as well. But I also want to say that this is why it's important for people to actually join organizations. It shouldn't be a, a, a situation where a bunch of individuals are just running around, just kind of figuring it out. Out on the fly, I think we're, we've reached a point where people really need to understand how crucial it is. And it is crucial to have a political home where you're being developed, where your natural strengths uh, uh, can really contribute and where you can develop those parts of uh, yourself uh, that need development and, and, and parts of yourself that need work. It really is incredible about how when you grow politically, you also mature as a person. And so it's really like a holistic sort of process that really takes place and in truth, I think best takes place within a, a, a discipline organization in and of itself. And I feel like that that is really the key to so much of what we're discussing. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lumon continue to be joined by Margaret Kimberly. You know, Margaret, like a lot of people, we've been discussing um, the issue around abortion rights in the United States, of course, uh, following the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which has itself sparked uh, a serious militant uh, uh, movement in the streets around this issue. And as I think a lot of people have been pointing out, and rightfully so, this is a situation where the, the Democrats had multiple opportunities to codify Roe v. Wade into law. And in the case of someone like, say, uh, uh, Barack Obama actually promised to do just that. But when it came time for the rubber to meet the road, all of a sudden uh, for Obama, it was no longer a priority. And now uh, uh, we're living under a Biden administration, Joe Biden, who is riding shotgun as vice president with Barack Obama, who has always had a bad position on uh, uh, abortion rights, uh, regardless of what he tries to say now. And when we look at the response to this from the Democrats, I mean, all we're really seeing is like Biden reportedly is like toying with the idea of maybe expanding the Supreme Court. I mean, as always, it's these things that um, don't, you know, get directly to the issue and also uh, an ongoing refusal of Biden not doing things that are within his power right now that could uh, uh, make uh, abortion access what it should be in this country. And you also published a piece about this in in Black Agenda Report, Margaret, uh, uh, talking about how the Democrats were exposed by the end of Roe v. Wade because so many of um, these tired tactics that the Democrats have used throughout the years, I I agree, have been exposed by this whole issue. And I think that there will be a, a considerable political fallout for the Democrats because of this. Indeed, I think it's actually happening right now. But but how are you sort of seeing that? Like what aspects of the Democrats as an institution do you think have been exposed by this thing? And uh, what do you see as the ripple effects? Well, it's it's funny to me uh, that uh, anyone who expressed um, uh, hesitancy about voting for Democrats, what were you always told? Protect the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter what else you think about the Democrats. If you're angry, if you're disappointed, you've got to protect the Supreme Court. And that means you've got to keep Democrats in office. So people did that. And what happened? So Barack Obama, as you point out, in 2008, campaigned saying he would uh, uh, pass legislation uh, that would codify Roe v. Wade, codify the uh, right to abortion access. And he gets into office, and what does he say within uh, at a press conference, uh, his 100th day in office? He said, um, uh, this legislation is not my highest priority. It turned out not to be a low priority. It was no priority at all. He had what um, uh, we're told is what Democrats always need. He had 60 Democratic seats in the Senate, a majority in Congress, and could have passed anything he wanted. So he could have done it, but he didn't care. And I also think uh, the fact that he didn't do it shows that uh, other Democrats didn't care that much either. 
Uh, and he knew it would be a heavy lift because they've been campaigning. Uh, it's a very cynical campaign to get people's votes, to raise money, uh, to vote shame, was to use Roe v. Wade when they really didn't care that much. Meanwhile, the Republicans, you know, if you're a Republican, you have a party that is serious about pursuing the things that they tell you they want to do. So for years, they've been saying, we are going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And very methodically, with the Supreme Court choices, with um, by taking over state legislatures, and this is something that the Democrats do very poorly. They put all their eggs into the basket of the presidency, and they have let Republicans take over state after state, that means they can draw district lines. That means they can gerrymander. Uh, that means there are states that had trigger legislation, which said abortion will be illegal if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned. And right away, there, there are now only 16 states that where you have an absolute right to seek uh, an abortion, and it is the fault of the Democratic Party. So this debacle has exposed their treachery. Um, I'm not even going to say it's a, an error or they're stupid or uh, those things are also true, but they just don't care about the things that we care about. And that's how they get people to vote for them. I, by the way, don't uh, vote for Democratic uh, presidential uh, candidates I haven't for a long time, but that's how they get people. And uh, so they got a majority under uh, Obama. All the stars were aligned. He doesn't do it. Nobody says anything. And now you have Biden and everything that um, they don't do. What do they do? Well, that you know, it's Manchin. It's uh, Senator Manchin. It's Senator Cinema. It's all their fault. And uh, I, I feel like it's good cop, bad cop. They get to point to them be, uh, when, in fact, none of them want to do what the people want them to do. So no build back better. Um, and Biden, you know, it's he talks a good game about, uh, uh, oh, it's a terrible thing. Roe v. Wade was overturned. Well, what are you going to do about it? Um, so, uh, so they have this 6-3 majority in the Supreme Court. A lot of um, other uh, uh, appointees throughout the federal judiciary and the Democrats have have Ultimately, they have failed. They have failed because of their corruption. They want to cut deals with Republicans more than they want to do the people's business. Um, both parties uh, exist to do the bidding of, uh, of the American oligarchy, and the people's needs come last. So we may get some attention occasionally when it's expedient for them to do so, but the end of Roe v. Wade shows um, uh, how little. Uh, of a stake we actually have in this political system. And, you know, Margaret, in the last election cycle, the last two election cycles, the Democrats were intent on, um, you know, doing a lot of pandering to black voters in particular. And then when, of course, Hillary Clinton didn't win uh, in 2016, then it was black voters fault because, you know, some Facebook ads allegedly um, propagated by Russia uh, convinced us either not to vote for Hillary or to vote for Donald Trump or or whatever those, you know, bikini Bernie ads and shoe ads were supposed to have, you uh, 
you know, convinced us to do uh, in regard to voting that that it's our fault that Hillary Clinton didn't win because we didn't vote for her. There's been all this overt pandering to black voters by the Democratic Party. And even with this, this uh, the overturning Roe versus Wade, and the upcoming uh, further evisceration of the Voting Rights Act, that's absolutely going to happen. I'm wondering how you're seeing the the temperature, the, the, the mood among black voters who have fallen for this, you know, we need to vote blue no matter who because, you know, Trump is the devil and he's going to kill us all. And now we have to continue to vote for the Democrats, even though Joe Biden has done nothing to protect the reproductive rights of women that's critical for particularly black and working class and poor women across this country. How, how do you gauge the mood among those voters um, and how they feel about this vote blue no matter who mantra that we are sure to hear again uh, in the midterms and in the upcoming presidential election? Well, uh, Jackie, you said it was uh, black people were blamed. Everybody was blamed except the people who couldn't be bothered to get out their vote. Uh, the Green Party or Susan Sarandon, any, anybody except the people who raised a billion dollars and then couldn't uh, get 78,000 more votes in the right places. Um, so uh, I'm hoping that, that black people start to wake up. We have a, um, a country by the very nature of this country, the duopoly as a, a white party and a black party. White people vote Republican. The, the, last Demo, uh, the last Republican, I'm sorry, the last Democrat to get a majority of white votes was Lyndon Johnson back in 1964. And uh, black people, and I understand why, see the Democrats as this party that uh, we have to have uh, in place in order to protect us from the Republicans, except they don't do that when they're in. So the Voting Rights Act is an excellent example. We were told this was always protected. The Supreme Court eviscerated it. And uh, when Obama was still in office, and what happened? Nothing. Now, they, of course, had messed up and lost their majorities. But what's what's going on uh, the, the, uh, since uh, Biden got in? And we were, you know, Biden, what a what a liar. Um, I, I guess he stands out because he's such a bad liar. Right. Um, you know, if I get these seats, you're going to get a bigger stimulus. You'll get this. You'll get that. And then there's always an excuse uh, about why you can't have something that you were told you were going to have. So the Voting Rights Act is um, pretty much null and void. There's no in enforcement um, uh, ability in it, so states can change laws. I mean, that's what the, the Republicans are doing across the country with uh, Trump's claim that uh, he he really won. They are tying the hands, even of elected official, officials, of governors, to um, uh, to be able to uh, have a jurisdiction over uh, election laws. So we're going to see um, a lot of, of, of election fraud all across the country and no enforcement mechanism to stop it from taking place, which also goes back to what I was saying before about the Democrats uh, allowing Republicans to take over these um, these legislatures. So this is a very, very dangerous um, um, moment. And then the first thing, what was the first thing Democrats did after Roe v. Wade was overturned? Use that to raise money. Right. 
texting people, calling people. Uh, Rose overturned. Now you need us. Give us money. It's like, really? After your failure, after this uh, uh, debacle, after this blew up in your face, you have the nerve to ask for money, but that's who they are. Uh, that's what um, that's what they do. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> when you were saying that, Margaret, I really it made me wonder, like, what even are the Democrats running on at this point? You know, because they, they've pretended to fight for several uh, important things in this recent period, but haven't really uh, uh, done much and certainly not really accomplished much. And, it, and what made me think about that was when you mentioned voting rights. I mean, I mean, you're talking about a, a, a struggle that was paid for in blood by black people in this country just to get the basic democratic right to uh to vote and so they've pretended to uh uh, fight for voting rights they've pretended to fight for lgbtq folks they've pretended to fight uh, around abortion rights they pretended to fight around you know uh, gun reform it's it's like there's all it's like all these half-hearted sort of things that they're doing almost like they want to try to put on a show like they're really doing something about these issues but the proof is in the pudding and there's just no uh, there's just not much concrete that they can really point to and hang their hat on that I think is going to be enough to want to uh, motivate people to swing them back uh, uh, into the office. And so in terms of the Biden administration, what we've been met with is just one batch of uh, broken promises after uh, uh, another. And so at this point, it honestly feels like they don't really have a platform. They don't really have a program. All they really have is is the fact that they are not the Republican Party. And I think at a certain point, we got a question. uh, When is that no longer enough? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's uh, well, they're running. They're still running against Trump. Mm, Trump, He's like, you know, like the best thing that ever happened to them. Um, And uh, it's January 6th. These committee hearings, it's January 6th, January 6th. They're, you know, they're that's like they're they're marketing uh, and they're uh, um, uh, their vote getter is just to say what they aren't and to uh, stoke up um, uh, the fear of uh, of the the, the Trumpists uh, coming back into office. But that's not enough. It's not gonna. It's not going to work. Look at the situation we're in in this country now. Why does Biden have such a low approval? Rating. It's because he lied so much about the things he was going to do. I mean, what? The, uh, how cynical can you be? They know people want the minimum wage to go up. They know people want student loan debt relief. They know people want the child tax credit to return. They know that people want all of these things, and they're not talking about them at all uh, because now they're in and now they're going to just use Trump. So that's their basic, you know, if it weren't for Donald Trump, I don't know what they would have to say, uh, to be quite honest. And now, of course, they're using their Roe v. Wade failure. I mean, look at this, the worst failure, one of the worst political debacles ever. And you use that as your um, uh, uh, your uh, get out the the, the vote uh, tagline. So um, it's basically an anti-vote. Those people are so terrible, and you have to keep them out. And it's propaganda. It's indoctrination. And what did they start doing? What did you see in social media as soon as Roe v. Wade was overturned? It's the fault of the left. It's the fault of the people who didn't vote for for Hillary Clinton. So they will always have something 
uh, other than substance, other than um, giving people what they need and what they say they're going to give, they will always use something. And uh, as long as Donald Trump's alive, it's going to be him. Yeah. And and I'm glad that you raised uh, the January 6th hearings, which I think will resume next week. And I and I, I have to admit, Margaret, I've been I've been slightly entertained by some of these hearings, um, just really watching some of these people squirm um, under, you know, uh, uh, questioning and, and, and hearing some of the, you know, soap opera like shocking uh, revelations that and it has been kind of like watching a soap opera in a any in a way. So, you know, because I realize that politically it is what it is. But you also wrote a piece about this these hearings in Black Agenda Report called the January 6th scam. And why do you call it that? Well, I, I called it that because it's um, uh, partly because of what I just said. It's being used to, to scaremonger and uh, get uh, uh, people to to stay in the Democratic fold when uh, they definitely ought to uh, leave. and But also this idea that it's only the Republicans that are hurting people, that it's not the Democrats at all. It's just those evil people. It's just those evil Trump folks. That's all you have to worry about. And it keeps people from looking at the failures of, uh, well, to say failure implies that they were ever interested in meeting people's needs, right? So I shouldn't use that word. Uh, their refusal. I mean, they, they work for the oligarchy. I mean, we all know about these studies which say uh, even if your party wins, you still don't get what you want. And that is, um, that is by design. So uh, they need these hearings. They need to. Um, uh, they need to hide their failures. We uh, we have a president. Oh, what does he talk about? Does he? Who, by the way, um, has brought the the world to the brink of war? There's an economic war of attrition attrition against Russia, which the U.S. is losing. By the way, um, Putin's price hike. I mean, I suppose you could say that. But um, uh, Biden's obsession with uh, with Russia to impoverish this country and impoverish impoverish the whole world. But all he says, what did he say last week? We're going to do whatever it takes. Who's the we? Is it people who can't put gas in their tanks and can't get to work and can't go to buy food? So uh, all of these things are um, are being used um, uh, in order to keep people uh, in line. But there's something else interesting uh, about January 6th that I think the left is missing. Why is it that the right wing could get thousands of people from all over the country um, to come to the Capitol to protest, and the left can't get, if we have 50 people together, we think it's a big success? And I'm not saying we should do um, what they did, but I think it's an opportunity for the left to ask themselves, what are we waiting for? What has to happen before we do something like that? And I I think it's um, a lot of people are still um, propagandized by the Democrats and think that they 
cannot um, they, they have no other choice but to um, to uh, uh, protect them and defend them. But these are very difficult times that uh, we are living in, and this is the time to reject what we've been doing. And January, the January sixth hearings just encourage people to go back to what they've been doing which is to pretend that there's a big difference between between the two uh, political parties and uh, when there is not. And, and there's another thing we've seen with January 6th, this love for a certain, you know, Democrats love to find some Republican to love, and it's Dick Cheney's horrible daughter this time, um, and people who should know better saying she should run for office. I mean, if that doesn't prove how bankrupt the Democrats are, why do you care who the Republicans won? Your uh, run, your job is supposed to be getting the right person on your side to run who can win and can deliver for the people. But uh, that's why I I call it a um, a scam. We're going to take another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Margaret Kimberly is here. And uh, I'm just seeing this, but uh, actor James Kahn has died at the age of 82. And uh, I mean, he was in about a million different uh, uh, movies on the big screen and television. I mean, he's basically been working from about 1963 till 2021. And I know for me, uh, the most you know noteworthy performance for him was when he played Sonny Corleone right. in, in The Godfather. I mean, this is the character that gave us the phrase bada bing, bada bang. And was set and was really the successor to uh, the Corleone crime family before he was assassinated, of course, making way for Al Pacino's character, Michael Corleone, to uh, ascend to the top. But rest in peace to James Caan. But, you know, Margaret, it, it was funny when you mentioned a moment ago, because this is so true, about how... The Democrats, when they're constantly shooting themselves in the foot and really digging their own political grave and making themselves sort of a non-viable uh, uh, political entity in the minds of uh, the people who they say are their base. And when it comes to these defeats and these setbacks, it's always, always, always somebody else's fault. And it's like you say, it's, it's the fault of uh, alternative parties for existing uh, or for just people who vote for alternative parties and things like that. Or it's because people didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. I mean, I honestly don't understand, like, why are we even still talking about Hillary Clinton? And, you know, all this coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know what I'm saying? Over that, like basically telling people, oh, well, you know, we could have had Hillary. OK, <laughs> like, why are we why are we treating that like some kind of uh, uh, ideal situation? And the fact that even in 2022, people are still talking about Hillary Clinton 
with some even like toying with the idea of saying like, oh, well, what could a Hillary Clinton presidential run in 2024 look like? I mean, I think it looks like a guaranteed loss, which uh, it, it uh, proved to be um, in 2016. But it also, I think, helps expose about how the Democrats, and I say this on the show a lot, they have no bench. They, they If they had some kind of, you know, uh, exciting candidate who was not only saying, but really fighting for things that uh, mattered to the Democratic base, then it seems like it would make sense to promote them. But instead, they're still beating the dead horse of a Hillary Clinton candidacy and presidency. And so to me, that's a, a sad statement for uh, the Democrats as a political institution. And why also, Margaret, it's so important that we be clear that any effort to really change this society and really address all these problems is going to have to be organized outside of the Democrats, which has a well-earned reputation as being the graveyard of social movements and really outside of the political mainstream and the associated institutions in general. Yeah, well, they, they don't have a bench because they don't want one. Uh, they they um, settled for Biden because they didn't want Bernie. They wanted to deep six his campaign again. And you could see it was all orchestrated. All of a sudden, everybody's dropping out and... Uh, you know, then Biden's getting endorsed, and then that uh, you know that horrible man Clyburn gets to act like some kind of kingmaker when you know he's part of the Democratic Party leadership, and they said, "Okay, we're picking Biden." So of course, what a surprise! He endorsed, endorses uh, uh, Biden. So he was this compromise. I don't even want to say a compromise candidate. They looked at the field. They didn't want Bernie, and uh, they decided to take a chance on um, uh, on Joe Biden, which has turned out to be a disaster for the um, the entire country. But they don't want a bench. They don't want a new face. Even a tiny bit of reform is anathema to them. Uh, how much money did Bloomberg give the Democrats? I can't remember how many millions of dollars it was. It was very clear. It was, you know, you can't pick anybody who's even a tiny bit liberal. Uh, so it's going to be someone awful. And this this Hillary fixation, I think people never got over the shock of Trump winning. And um, so every, you know, a lot of people think about what might have been. Well, what might have been? What would we have that's uh, that's so different um, if we had had her instead of uh, instead of Trump? She might have screwed up the Supreme Court nominations, too. Who knows? But uh, people have never gotten over it. The Democratic propaganda machine is always running. And uh, she would, I'm, you know, I think she would love to run again. She's never gotten over the fact that she lost. That was all she was prepared for for the rest of her life was to be the next president. It never occurred to her that she was going to lose, uh, which is ironically why she didn't have the get-out-of-vote operation, which uh, would have guaranteed a victory for her. But I, I absolutely, she would lose again. She's a very divisive figure. Uh, she's not someone who's going to uh, excite the base. I mean, Biden got a, many votes. I think it was a record-breaking number of votes, but it was more about Trump, actually, than it was about him. And for the Democratic Party to be in this uh, sorry state with his low approval, of course he has low approval ratings. He didn't do what he said he was going to do. Um, so uh, it would, I guess it would be funny, right? We could all make our popcorn and uh, watch like it's a bad movie. But um, no, they don't have a bench. They don't want a bench. And they would, uh, in fact, try to run her again. But if they should do that, 
I don't know what it would take for people to exit the Democratic Party. That should be the death knell for them. Yeah. And, you know, you you describing that, Margaret, it makes me think about, you know, I don't think we've really taken stock of how we're still grappling with the consequences of the Hillary Clinton candidacy in 2016 because and it's been documented for a fact that it was Hillary Clinton's idea to amplify Trump supposedly thinking that you know people would be so put off by his um absurdity that you know it would delegitimize him we see how wrong she was because the truth is if you're thinking of voting you know for a Hillary Clinton or for you know you know anything like that then you're not you're not seriously considering voting for Trump anyway right and so all you're doing is just like helping him get free publicity which we know he got quite a a, a bit of which means all of those things that make Trump appealing to his base which the liberals still refuse to acknowledge um, and and what made him attractive to some people over Hillary, all you've done is just uh, uh, made him an even stronger presence. What else did we get from the 2016 Clinton campaign? Russiagate, right? Which is a, 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 a big part of what we're still grappling with to this day. So these are things that liberals refuse to acknowledge. Certainly these are things that the Democrats refuse to acknowledge. And, you know, they, you know, just yesterday on the show, I was talking about how a, a movement people who would rather be quote unquote right than to be successful. And I think that uh, this is a similar thing with the Democrats. They are so hell bent on doing things their way that they literally don't care if it hurts them. Right. And we're at a point where we know, as we've been saying, that the far right is not only organizing, but is also armed and violent. And meanwhile, all we're being told is, well, all we got to do is vote or donate to this or that Democrat. You know, don't ask whether or not they uh, uh, support abortion rights or any of these things the party cares to claim about if we listen to the Pelosi's of the world and things like that. And so it's like we're handed a, a, a bunch of nothing here. And so even their, you know, matron saint or whatever, or this person that they hold out, as, you know, their fantasy uh, savior or whatever. I mean, even that just comes with so much baggage and very real impacts for uh, uh, people on the ground that I think is just another example of why uh, uh, the Democrats as an institution are just not viable. Well, they, you know, they um, they are going to do all right as individuals, the political class, they mm-hmm. define whoever's in office or out so they don't suffer regardless of who's there. So if uh, the conditions are not right for the oligarchy to put them back, they just say, oh, well, look at us and say, well, good luck with that. And uh, you mentioned when you mentioned Nancy Pelosi's name, I remember in recent years she was saying abortion is faded as an issue and it's not one that uh, we should uh, concentrate on. So uh, that just shows you what liars they are. But uh, and, and you just uh, reminded me of that. But um, uh, I think they, you know, they they're happier being in because that means that they get the goodies. But if they're out, that's okay with them too. And they just sit back and and wait for um, uh, the environment to be better for them. They are certainly not thinking uh, about us at all. 
Yeah. And, you know, a, a little bit of a pivot, because this also was just uh, uh, reported. Brittany Griner uh, pled guilty to drug charges in Russia. You know, this has been an ongoing saga and we've talked about it here on the show. And I think, Margaret, that there has been a, a really, I don't know, confusing discourse about political prisoners uh, that the issue with Brittany Griner has presented itself now. My understanding is that her arrest was the result of, you know, a typical custom search and they found, you know, cartridges of hash oil and her pleading guilty, according to her attorney who uh, answered why she pled guilty, said that it was her first chance to address the charges against her, adding that she recognized she was a role model to many and thought it was important to own up to her mistakes, something that she hopes the judge will take into account ruling uh, while ruling on her case. And she said that she, you know, she wasn't intending to, you know, of course, you know, traffic drugs, it just, you know, she made a mistake. She was packing in a rush and she plays on a Russian team during the off season, which a lot of uh, WNBA players do, which I think says a lot about the money that WNBA players make compared to NBA players. But that's that's another issue. But but I'm wondering how you are seeing the way some are positioning Brittany Griner as a political prisoner and and how you feel about the framing of that while people aren't really paying attention to issues like due process and the way courts work, you know, in in any country, but a different country entirely. And also the fact that all of this could have been avoided if um, the Biden administration, if Joe Biden had agreed to a quote unquote prisoner swap, but didn't do it. Well, I don't think she's a political prisoner. The political prisoners are people who've been in jail for 40 and uh, 50 years in this country. Uh, it's very unfortunate. I feel for her. I think she's been in prison this long, basically because the U.S. and Russia don't have relations right now. They're, Russia and the U.S. do not talk. And we have our, our dumb president calling the Russian president a war criminal, saying he's got to leave office, using his name, Putin's price hike, to blame him for everything. That is not an atmosphere that is conducive for people to get together and talk. We have, you know, there have been years from a tit-for-tat diplomatic expulsions. There are only, I, I read recently, there are only 100 people working in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, and there used to be 1,000. So there's literally no one for them to talk to. Russia has no incentive to want to talk to the U.S. So this is the kind of thing that in the past would have been handled by now. There would have been a prisoner swap or uh, they, you know, drop the charges or call it a humanitarian decision or, or something along those lines. So she is a victim of uh, this uh, war that the U.S. Um, there's a proxy war in Ukraine involving both countries, the U.S. trying to destroy Russia's economy. Of course, nobody's talking about the basketball player who had, uh, you know, CBD oil in her, in her luggage. Uh, I'm hoping that by pleading guilty, you know, that's what happens in this country, right? Most people uh, take a plea. So maybe Russia is like the U.S. after all. But it, at any rate, I do, 
I do hope that this is resolved and she can come home. Uh, it, it pained me to see her. And, you know, in Russia, they have people chained and they're in a cage. And it was, it was a horrible thing, especially to see a black person being treated that way. But she's not a political prisoner. She is a prisoner because of uh, U.S., the U.S., um, a futile effort to contain Russia, to make war on Russia. And unfortunately, this young woman has been caught in the middle. Yeah, and that, that's what I've been saying from the beginning about Brittany Griner. She's absolutely caught up in the middle of a conflict that has absolutely nothing to do with her. And I feel like particularly amongst uh, black folks, you know, she she's taken on uh, sort of a, a, a new kind of image. And I think uh, people are ascribing a kind of political significance to her in particular that I actually just don't think is appropriate. I mean, this is a part of uh, the kind of tit for tat nature of these sorts of situations. And what I also think people are ignoring is about how, I mean, Biden himself or his administration, they actually don't seem terribly concerned about what happened to, to uh, uh, Brittany Griner, which I think is an aspect of this as well. And I feel like people are, are bringing up these things that are just not that relevant. They're like, oh, well, um, she was targeted by Russia because she was a lesbian or because she's a black woman and, and black women are a big part of Biden's base. I mean, that just, I think, just has absolutely nothing to do with it. But I think even that kind of poor analysis, I think, stems from a misunderstanding of the situation itself, which is not particular to black folks. Certainly, it's characteristic of how uh, the rank and file American in this country understands it because of the uh, uh, ceaseless propaganda coming from the state. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Margaret Kimberly, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. As always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.